Good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Boker, and I'm going to be re reading Revelations 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, <clears throat> Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Thanks, Jason. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for your um, holy, uh, abiding, life-giving word. Pray, God, that, uh, that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, empower me to be able to speak clearly, uh, to um, be able to proclaim your excellencies God, I pray that, um, that today, this morning, that each one of us, every dear one that you brought here, Lord, that we would leave here um, understanding more of your uh, unfolding plan uh, for us as your precious children living in your already but not yet kingdom. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. It's a great morning. Um, other than I saw one Pittsburgh Steelers shirt back there. I'm really sorry about that. Gee, sir, if you could keep your coat zipped up, I'd appreciate it. Man, the Steelers fans, at least it's not yellow. Um, the, the good news for you this morning is that um, I've calmed down a little bit and I've stopped crying. I was, um, the, I think I have, uh, the... Uh, if you know anything about me at all, by the way, my name is Dan Hardy, and I'm one of the pastors here, I serve alongside Chris and John and Pat. If you know anything about me is that I, I, I have a passion for God's Word. I have a passion for the living God and for God's people, and to see people outside the kingdom come to Christ. But I also have a passion to not just know the Word, but to know the God of the Word. And that's a passion of ours here at this church as well. One of our, uh, two of our, our core pursuits are um, encountering God in the Word, and intimacy with God. That, that our goal is not so much that we master the Word, but that the Word masters us. 
Our passion isn't so much that we um, know a ton about Scripture, even though that is, a, is really good. We want to know a ton about Scripture. But as we are learning a ton in the Scriptures, that we're loving Jesus more, that we're understanding more of his love for us. And this message this morning, it's the last message in the seven-week sermon series called Thy Kingdom Come. And uh, we just sung about God's kingdom. And... Um, and if this message could be titled, it's, it's titled The Perfected Kingdom. Another a subtitle might be The Consummated Kingdom or The Final Kingdom, but it's really about hope. It's really a message about hope um, living um, in the already kingdom, awaiting the perfected or the consummated or the final kingdom. It's about hope, really. And uh, this morning, I got, a, I got a phone call. I got a couple of texts that I missed and then got a phone call, both Nancy and I did, that our, our little one-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Brosy Ambrose, was having a grand mal seizure. And uh, that's still there. Um, and I just, um, Nancy and I just prayed, and Nancy went upstairs as she was headed for the hospital, and, and I just started sobbing, you know, just... Uh, For a, we're not robots, right? I mean, God gave us emotion. He gave us feeling. Um, it's my only grandson so far. Um, but then I just, I had a check. I said, God, I just, I, I begged God to heal Rosie. I begged God to give Natalie and Jared comfort. And then I was able to actually thank God for this grand mal seizure. Because I just, I just, by his spirit, he just allowed me to think upon um, his um, sovereignty, that he is working his goodwill and purpose out. I was reminded for a second that, that my hope, my ultimate hope, my sure hope, my living hope is not in Brosy being better. I hoped he would be better. But could I still have hope in Jesus Christ? Can I still have hope in his promises even if God chose not to heal Ambrose? God did. Brosie's back home apparently breaking things again already. He's a one and a half year old boy. Yeah, praise God for that. And so, so it's, it's good to hope in those things. But that's not where our ultimate hope lies. At the same time, I got an email this morning. I got an email from a, from a, a man who loves Jesus, a man who um, has a heart for teens. And, um, and it was... He, he's been particularly struck by the suicides of teenagers in our community the last month or two. Um, a young man at Windsor High School, as you know, um, killed himself recently. A young lady at Resurrection Christian School recently um, killed herself. And it's, um, it's a horrible thing. And, and um, everybody, who would not want to do something about that, right? I mean, who would not want to do something about that? I want to do something about that. In, in this, this email, there's a couple things that just, that, that in light of me preparing for this message, in light of getting this right after what happened to Barozzi, um, there's some things that struck a chord, a, actually a wrong chord in me, um, a, a chord of, of maybe some, some error. Um, and I'm not judging a heart, right, because this man I know has a great heart, but just where I'm at, it says, this email says, we are desperate for answers and strategies from our Heavenly Father in regards to battling the epidemic of teen suicide. Can I tell you that there is actually no strategy for battling the, the ultimate epidemic of teen suicide? Yes, 
There are great counselors that when kids are struggling and threatening to kill themselves, we need to put them in front of these counselors. Yes, sometimes there's medication that needs to be administered. But the big problem, the true problem, the foundational problem of suicide mostly is a lack of hope. It's a lack of sure hope, of living hope, that God's promises are true and they're sure. It went on to say um, that we want to encourage these kids to live a life with a purpose, establishing hope and desire to live out their story. And I go, no, is that I don't want to give kids or anybody hope to live out your story. I want you to know God's story. I want you to know that, that we don't have a story outside of God calling us into his story. That the story is, is that we are sinners deserving death and separation from God. The story gets better, though, where we have a loving God who sent his only son to be killed so that we can live and so that we can have an eternal relationship with our creator. That's the hope, and I'm so thankful for Stephen, and I'm thankful for Nate Thurlow. I'm thankful for Michael with Young Life. I'm thankful for the guys, other guys with FCA and gals with FCA. I'm thankful for the other youth pastors who want to administer the only hope that can set the captives free. And I don't want you to mishear me on this at all, is that there are, there are physiological reasons for some of this at times. But when we treat the symptom while ignoring the heart, it leads to eternal pain and death and suffering, potentially. And then it says, join us where we can seek the Lord. Become more aware and develop steps to push back against the darkness. And they say that we, we, we fight against flesh and blood. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the present principalities of darkness that are impacting local hearts and minds. Yes, we do. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities in the darkness. And the way we fight is we fight with the gospel. We don't rebuke Satan. We empower God. We don't empower God ever. Excuse me. We beg God to fight for us. So the message this morning, and, and we... Uh, what time is the first football game on? <laughs> it's Pittsburgh. It doesn't matter. So, yeah, just uh, we'll have a break. You can get some coffee, and we'll just keep going. And I'll tell you right up front that, that uh, we had communion planned, and, um, and, the, and the elements weren't here, which I think is probably mostly my fault. Um, so it just actually gave me freedom to actually, like, preach right through that. Um, so God knows. But our hope, as we're going to see today, is not in temporal circumstances. Our hope cannot be in, um, in fixing things. Um, we, can, we can hope that things change. We can hope that our trials change. But ultimately, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a quick review. We're in our seventh and final sermon on thy kingdom come. It's the perfected kingdom. And the Bible is a story of King Jesus and his kingdom. We've talked about this. This kingdom theme or pattern runs through the entire Bible. And, as, and I want you to, as you're studying your Bible in community groups, as you're reading it, look for kingdom. Look for throne. Look for king. It's all over God's word. And this kingdom thread can be summarized as God's rule over God's people in God's place enjoying God's blessings. Don't forget that, that we actually enjoy God's blessings. 
blessings while we're living in his kingdom, in his place, under his rule. The Bible begins with God making the world very good. No corruption, no decay, no death. None of that stuff that dominates the world today. He created us as his masterpiece. You and I are the centerpiece, if you will, the pinnacle. We were created in God's image to know him and to have a relationship with him. He didn't create us to just know about him, but to really know him and to enjoy him and all of his blessings. And because of our sin and because of God being just, we deserved the wrath of the Father. Eternal separation from God and eternal death. This punishment is referred to as the curse. And our relationship with God was severed. All of the relationships were severed. Our, our relationship with, with uh, creation was ruptured. And this resulted in spiritual, psychological, social, and physical decay and breakdown. Everything has fallen apart. All pain and suffering in this world are a result of the sins of mankind. The Bee Gees sang about it. How can you mend a broken heart? How can a loser ever win? Please help me mend my broken heart and let me live again. The Bee Gees. If you're taking notes, ignore that one. (laughs) Thankfully, God is not only just, but he's loving. He's not just loving. He is all loving. And at the very moment of the curse, he proclaimed the good news that Eve's offspring or her seed would come, would would produce the messianic deliverer who would crush the serpent's head once and for all. And this would put an end to all evil in the world and bring his people back into a right relationship with him. And this gracious promise of a deliverer becomes the organizing theme for the rest of Scripture, and it is our sure hope. It is our sure hope. Mark tells us uh, that Jesus' first words when he kicked off his three-year public ministry were this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is arrived or at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus came to reestablish his kingdom and to provide a way for his people, his people from every tribe and every nation to enter his kingdom, a way for his beloved people to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Last week, we talked about our primary mission. Does anybody remember what that is? Why were we empowered by the Holy Spirit? To be his witnesses. We're to be his witnesses. We're to testify to the power of the living, resurrected God in our life. That's our job as kingdom citizens. And like any good witness, testifying involves both remembering and responding. Remembering the reality of all we've seen, heard, and experienced God do in our lives. Remembering that we were lost, and now we're found. Remembering that we were blind, but now we see. Remembering that we were enemies, but now we're friends. Today, I want to give you a glimpse of our future hope. When God, when God completes and makes good on all of his promises. But I'm actually going to back up and go to 1 Peter. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And I'm going to read this.
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, future kingdom, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter tells us that, that all who place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins has been born again to a what? To a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope. Not a drab, hopeless, and joyless existence, but a living hope. And the foundation or the reality of this living hope is the fact that we've been born again. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have been born again. There is no such thing as a Christian, a Christ follower whose heart's been regenerated, who has not been born again. Born... the media likes to make fun of born-again Christians, but all Christians are born again. When we were born again, we became new creations, spiritually speaking. We were forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and I, and we're restored to a relationship with our Creator that we were made for. When we were born again, we have entered the kingdom of God, where we become God's people, living in His place, under His rule, enjoying His blessing. Jesus said it this way to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Every other hope, every good hope will eventually disappoint and not produce lasting joy. We can hope that a trial goes away, and if and when it does, it may produce joy or happiness. I was the happiest guy in Windsor when I got the news that Ambrose went home. But that wasn't my ultimate hope. It's not my ultimate hope. We can can hope our circumstances or or those of others change. And if if they do, we can be happy. That's a good thing. These are good hopes. Kids, health, finances, love. But they are not sure hopes. Every one of those are going to disappoint us at some point. Ultimate hope that produces lasting joy is not dependent upon our temporal circumstances, but on our eternal condition and hope. Peter tells us that those who are born again have an inheritance that is what? Imperishable. It's undefiled. It'll never fade. It's guaranteed. It will never go away. It's everlasting. Nothing can happen to your inheritance. Our ultimate hope also doesn't depend on us or others. It's being kept in heaven for us, and we're being guarded for it. Are you ready for today's passage yet? The book of Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation, and Revelation is a series of visions where, he, where, where the curtain is pulled back for John so that John can get a vision of what happens behind the scenes between Jesus' resurrection and ascension until Jesus comes back again to judge the living and the dead. 
The hope that we have as Christians is a sure and living hope. It's a hope with a present reality and a future expectation. It's a biblical hope grounded in a God who is true and whose promises are sure. What does hope mean? There is a difference between our modern use of the word hope and biblical hope. And some of you have heard this story before. I've, I've told it a couple of times. I'm not the most creative guy in the world, so when I, when I have something that works, I just keep doing it every Sunday for the rest of my life. The difference between modern use of hope the modern word of hope and the biblical meaning of hope can be reflected in the way a young girl responds after she has been to her first wedding. My guess is is that it occurs to her sitting at this wedding that she would like to have a wedding someday herself. And it's not necessarily related to her looking forward to having a husband, actually. More probably, she envisions the event itself. The hair, the dress, the bridesmaids, the flowers, the decorations, the words, the music, the whole ambiance that surrounds the wedding. In earlier days, girls used to keep things for that special day in a box called their hope chest. And I think we've got a few of those in our house still because we've got these bins, these Tupperware bins under our bed that's actually pushing up the mattress, and all the kids, when they got married, were supposed to take them with them, but I'm not sure, but I think both my sons have a hope chest under there. I don't know why. Um, I'm going to talk to them after the service. So they had this, the girls had this hope chest, and as, it grew, as, it, as a girl grew older, she accumulated more and more junk, um, and her hope continued to grow. Yet all of her hope was not based on a future certainty, but simply a dream or a wish in her heart to have a wedding someday. That's a good hope and a wish. As such, her life is, is business as usual, and though she periodically wonders and wishes and hopes for marriage, not much of her life has changed. Then one day, on that white stallion, galloping across the horizon of her life, comes her knight in shining armor. He approaches, he swoops down, grabs her, off the, grabs her off the ground by the waist, sweeps her into his arms, and they look lovingly into each other's eyes as he slips the rock in her finger and says, will you marry me? Now everything has dramatically changed. She is now so consumed with a certain prospect of marriage to a certain and future husband that that radically alters everything in her life. She views every dress store and bridal magazine through a new lens, a lens formed by the future reality of that future day with her future husband. Her friends are now objects of her invitation list and prospects for her wedding party. The certainty and reality of the promise create within her a hope that not only preoccupies her attention, but radically alters everything in her life. She not only has hope of having a wedding with all that she imagines, but now she has a sure hope of a husband. This is a biblical hope. This is what God's work refers to. This is the living hope that Peter talks about. It's a hope that changes the way we think and the way that we live. It changes the trajectory of our life. This is the hope that we see in today's passage. Are you ready? In the last chapter, of the last book of the book, the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John describes the believer's future inheritance, that our, our sure hope he describes here. In verse 1, he says this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no, no more. You see, God will recreate everything. Uh, this earth is sin-soaked. This earth is, is diseased. It's decaying. The earth as we know it, with its pollution, earthquakes, tsunamis, hailstorms, tornadoes, etc., will be perfectly remade. There will be no more so-called natural disasters. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven simply means sky, in case you're wondering. It's not, it's not necessarily the physical place where God, where he lives, like a house with an address. It's a sky. And he says, the seas will be no more. And the best way, the, the way I understand this, and there's some different versions, is that the seas were no more does not mean that there won't be bodies of water in the new earth. But it refers to the source of earthly rebellion, chaos, and danger. The sea from which the beast emerged. The, symbolic, the symbolic source of rebellion will no longer threaten creation's perfection. In other words, the, the sea will be no more. Evil will be no more. Rebellion will be no more. And while verse 1 gives us a, a wide-angle view of the earth, uh, we get to uh, zoom in on the new city. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. Jerusalem is not a city of bricks and mortar, but a city of people redeemed by the blood of Christ. It is the dwelling place of God. John likened the city to a bride because of God's covenant with his people who will dwell with him there. A repeating promise through all of Scripture is, is that I will be your God and you will be my people. This is language used in the Bible that refers to marriage, which is a picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. Further, John compares the city to a bride because its inhabitants, God's redeemed, you and I, will be pure, will be perfect, will be beautiful like a bride. In verse 3, it says, God will dwell with his people. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God will be with man. The dwelling place of God now is in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place in heaven will be, will be, um, will be in the city. It will be the person of Jesus Christ. It will be the lamb on the throne. Just like it was in the garden, God will tabernacle or, or dwell with his people. What was aimed at in Eden, what was aimed at in the tabernacle as it traveled through the promised land, what was aimed at in the temple, what was aimed at in the church will finally be realized. God will dwell with his people in intimate covenant relationship. However, this time there'll be no sin, there'll be no evil, there'll be no decay, no destruction. There is no need for a temple. If you look at verse 22 in chapter 21, it says Jesus will be the temple of the triune God. It says, I saw no temple in the city, John says. Where is it? I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Thus it seems that God is saying that the whole world is going to be, become the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. God dwelling with man, God with us, is our sure hope. That's our sure hope. He's our ultimate inheritance. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I long for the things that are going to be afforded to me, the benefits of heaven. I long for the next verse that we're going to talk about. I don't often long for the presence of the king. That make no mistake that our inheritance is the living God himself that will dine with us 
and walk with us in the coolness of the garden like he did with Adam and Eve. God, the creator of the cosmos, God who promised salvation to his people, God who gave up everything to redeem you and I, he is our inheritance. He is our reward. We have a deposit, and the deposit is called the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee of our future salvation. But can I tell you that it's going to be better? It's going to be better in heaven. Because we will have God with us, Emmanuel, and we'll be in a sinless state. There'll be no rebellion and evil and decay. Paul tells us that Christians are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that, that he is our blessed hope. That's from Titus 2, 11 through 14. Then at the Last Supper, Jesus referenced the final blessedness of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine, the wine, until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. I can't even imagine that. I mean, you think it's great, like you guys getting together and having a microbrew? Wait till you get to drink from the vine with the living God in a recreated heaven and earth in the new Jerusalem. Too often, heaven is looked at as a place. I know I've talked about this before. I grew up as an altar boy going to parochial school, and I always had this vision of me in heaven someday, not looking forward to it, standing about like this, clouds up to my waist, halo on my head, holding the hymnal, and looking something like this. What kind of eternity is that to look forward to? That it will be a physical place and we will be resurrected in physical bodies doing what I believe are things that we enjoy doing now. And in verse 4, John describes what life will be like in the presence of God. Since he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the act of reversing the curse. The decay, the disease, the death that are still prevalent in the present kingdom will be done away with in the perfect, consummated kingdom. These former things have passed away. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I do know that we're going to have resurrected bodies. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. I know it'll be a physical world, a physical earth. What I don't know is that, like, I kind of feel like in, in parts of my life, I was like in my prime at age 17, and here I am over here at, page, at, at, at age 59. I'm going, like, when I arrive and he's checking the, um, the book uh, to see if I'm in it, which he already knows I'm in it, Am I going to get to say, hey, God, you know, can I, I mean, if you can put me back like at age 32, I'd appreciate it. You know, I was, uh, nothing was sagging. I was kind of good looking. I had a little bit of, you know, my, my, it's like the max high point in my life. Yeah, but I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know. All I know is we're going to have physical bodies. I don't know what age. I mean, I'll take 59. I'd rather not have 17. But he will make all things new. Right now, in this present kingdom, you and I, Christian, have been made new spiritually. We are, we're already his treasured possession. 
You are already seen as sinless, pure, and spotless. You have already been cleansed of the guilt and penalty of your sin and clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are a new creation now in whom he sees no more sin. But one day we will live in perfection. We actually won't sin. We actually won't die. We actually won't sag. God's word, a place in God's word, I forget the scripture, I think maybe 2 Corinthians, not sure, don't yell it out, it'll embarrass me, but it says this, this is exactly what it says, it says that the outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. We can't reverse the effects of sin. I can eat well, I can exercise, and I am. The last time I looked in the mirror, the outer man's still decaying. There's, we're still going to get Alzheimer's. There's still going to be grand mal seizures. There's going to be miscarriages. There's going to be death. So we can put our hope that in things getting better. It's okay to, to hope that maybe that you have a better job. That's okay to hope for that. Or, or if you're single, to hope that God would bring you a spouse or that somebody would be healed. That's not a, that's not a bad hope. But, but, the, but the, the, uh, where the rubber hits the road is, is that when what you're hoping for does not come to fruition, how do you respond? That tells you and me that our hope is misplaced. And there's no, there's no um, judgment on that in my heart. I, I, I struggle with that every day. I long for things. I put my hope in things that I think are good hope, and then when they don't come to fruition, I find myself getting angry. I find myself not being able to thank the Lord. He is making all things new. And he tells John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you believe it? That all things will be new. Verse 6, and he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. Everything will be restored. Sin and all its effects will be gone. God's people will finally be in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying his blessings without being encumbered with sin. There'll be no presence of Satan or sin or their effects on us and our surroundings. He declares it is done because he is trustworthy and true. God is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He sees everything from beginning to end. He has already written your life story. And can I tell you, no matter what you're going through now or in the future, that He's good. He's so good. And He loves you. And He's working out His good will and purpose in our lives. We can take it to the bank that he is good and it is done. And we're going to finish up here in verses, the last part of verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The spring of the water of life is the throne of God. We see that in Revelation 22.1. It is the throne of grace because here the thirsty drink without payment. It's, by, it's a free gift from God that, that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, the, that salvation is a gift from God and it flows from King Jesus. And it's coming to the cross. It's coming to the throne where the thirsty are eternally satisfied. And let me hit, let me hit verse 8. Well, let me read verse 7 real quick. The one who conquers will have this heritage. What's the heritage? It's our inheritance. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Let me tell you what this doesn't say that you've got to live a perfect life all the way through. That you can't struggle. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that, that Jesus is our conqueror. That faith and trust in Jesus, if we have our faith and trust in Jesus, if we are satisfied with Jesus, if he is the one that quenches our thirst, that we will have this heritage. It's a sure heritage. It is not dependent upon anything we've done. And then verse 8 this hard verse, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second of death. And I want you to think for a minute, who do you know that's cowardly, faithless, detestable, who's a murderer, who's sexually immoral, who's a, who's a sorcerer, idolater, or a liar? Who do you know? That's me. That is me. And what he's saying is that all people that have sinned will burn in the lake of fire. What he's saying is that we're all sinners. What he's saying is, is that, that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars that have not put their faith in trust in Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I want to close with Matthew chapter 26. And this is my communion verse. And I want you to pretend there's virtual elements up here. The very first Lord's Supper, the very first communion was an observation of Passover. And Passover was, was first inaugurated with the killing of a perfect and unblemished lamb by the Israelites in Egypt. And God told Moses to tell the people to, to take that lamb, take its blood and put it on the doorpost on outside of the doorpost, and that the angel of death would pass over so that the child wouldn't die. And that was a, a celebration, if you will, for, uh, for centuries for God's people to remember their exodus from the oppression and bondage of the slavery they were in with the Egyptians. And Jesus did this in chapter 26. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Skip on down to verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In the Last Supper, we see how the gospel is backward-looking, remembering what Christ had done. It is presently engaging, remember who we are in Christ. And it is forward-looking to his return to judge the living and the dead. And to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means not only looking back to the cross with gratitude, but living in his already kingdom and looking forward with hope to his perfect, perfected or consummated kingdom. And it's especially this forward-looking hope in God's coming kingdom that provides resources for our endurance and willingness to live now in radically different ways, even in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your holy, your living, your active, your abiding word. And I thank you that, um, that we are ones that, that, that get to live on the other side of all this history and your um, final um, prophecy, the 66 books of the Bible. And I thank you that we, as we get to look back on that, we get to see and be reminded that um, as a result of our first parents' sin, that every uh, uh, person, every human from that point was, was infected um, by this um, indwelling sin that caused separation from you, that caused um, decay and disease on this earth, that caused death. But I thank you, God, that even though you had to judge us justly and declare us worthy of death, that you so loved us that you put in forth a plan before the beginning of time to bring us back into a right relationship with you. And I thank you right at the moment that you uh, proclaimed the curse on humanity, you also proclaimed blessing and that you said that the woman's seed would bring forth a messianic deliverer who would reconcile us back into a right relationship with you and others and your good creation. And Lord, we get to look back and we know that that person was none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we praise you that you who knew no sin became our sin, that you willingly went to the cross and took all of our past, present, and future sin upon yourself, and you received the full wrath of the Father that we deserved so that we will never receive the wrath of the Father. 
And I thank you that you did not stay dead, that you were raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that you gave us the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit that secured and guaranteed a future redemption. And I thank you that we get to live on this rock called earth and that you've called us into service as your witnesses being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God, we acknowledge that salvation is your work and that somehow you've allowed us to come alongside and to be the proclaimers of the only news that can set the captives free. And God, I thank you that that you've allowed us, you've given each of us us this ministry of reconciliation. And God, as as hard things come up, as, as inevitable hard things come into our lives, God, I pray that we would be a body, a local body here in Windsor that speaks truth and hope to one another, that we grieve when others grieve. But in that grieving, we don't grieve as those without hope grieve. That we remind each other that we have a sure and living hope because we've been born again. And God, help us live lives right now, today, in light of eternity. Help us believe your promises. Help us believe that what you say is true, that you will dwell with us in perfection one day. And that we will have physical bodies that will have no more decay, no more disease. And that sin and evil will be banished forever. So God, I pray that we would be a church that walks in that living hope. For your glory and for the good of this church. And God's people said.